welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Happy Friday. I love this song. This is a great way to get into the weekend. Um, it's been two weeks since we've chatted last because we had, it was Easter last weekend and I got a rare Friday off. I hope you all had a, a very nice break um, here in Toronto where I'm coming to you from today. It is beautiful and sunny. Um, so I hope wherever you are driving, um, maybe you're on a dock, maybe you're at work, um, you're getting a little bit of uh, vitamin D. Uh, I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we talk about the biggest stories of the week and debate them with amazing panelists. And today we have two return all-stars, Carl Dockstetter, who's co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs in, uh, on News Talk 610 in Niagara, News Talk 1290 in London, and AM800 in Windsor on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to noon. And Tamara Cherry, former crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications. Carl and Tamara, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks. how are you? Yeah, thanks for I'm having ex- us. I'm excellent. I'm in a very good mood. I've been excited to talk to you guys all day today. And um, there's lots of good stories, which are both political and I think that touch people's everyday lives. So we've got a good a good spectrum. And, and I think the biggest one this week has been, obviously, inflation. So this week, Canada's annual inflation rate hit its highest level since 1991, according to Statistics Canada. So it's at 6.7% in March, and that is the fastest year-over-year increase in the consumer price index in over 31 years. And for those of you wondering, what's a consumer price index? Because I Googled it to make sure that's basically Hmm. how we measure the average prices experienced by Canadian consumers, Um, which is, I think, something you're probably living with every day. So for many Canadians, like small business owner Christy Scugaris, who runs Haute Balloon in Montreal, costs are starting to add up. Prices for things like gas are reaching new highs. Here's what she has to say. This guy used to cost $50 to fill up, and now it's at least 100 It is ridiculous. John Ehrlichman with BNN Bloomberg notes these costs are expanding to everything and have a variety of causes, from the pandemic to the invasion in Ukraine. All the challenges that Canadian consumers are facing right now, whether it's the gas pump, whether it is the grocery store, whether you're just buying things that you might need like furniture, or whether as many of us get out and maybe start traveling again, the reality that airfares and hotel costs are skyrocketing. And Obviously, it's not just a Canada issue right now, but the challenge is going to be on the economic front. So how expensive are we talking? Because I think we all say stuff's more expensive, but what does it actually mean? Well, gas prices are up 39% compared to a year ago, or a month ago, sorry, not even a year ago, a month ago. (laughs) Housing is up on 12.9% on average compared to last year. Groceries are up 8.7% year over year, and eggs and dairy are big contributors to that. So you're feeling the squeeze, right? And wages are only up by 3.4%. So that's way behind inflation. So what needs to happen? Derek Holt, Scotiabank's head of capital market economics, says the Bank of Canada has to raise interest rates again. We have excess demand, we've recovered more than the lost jobs, and we have inflation tripling and soon quadrupling the Bank of Canada's target. So why are we still sitting at 1%? Ehrlichman agrees. Central banks like our Bank of Canada are going to try to fight this inflation with higher rates and the economic path ahead, while still positive for the year, has been cooled a little bit. So my question is, we're waiting for the Bank of Canada to catch up and they've been catching flack from lots of economists. But I was wondering, you know, what are you doing to make it work? You know, how is this hurting you now and what are you changing about your life? And the other question I want to ask the panel today, too, is, 
is do we think any politician in this country is dealing with this correctly? I know there are limits to what they can do, but, you know, inflation historically has been a bit of a government killer and we're uh, Quebec and Ontario are facing elections. So maybe you first, Carl. Um, have you made any changes in your, your everyday life? And do you feel like are you feeling like politicians at any level of government are on this? Yeah, we're we're driving a lot less. My wife and I are fortunate enough to have our own vehicles, but we're effectively functioning as if we have one vehicle just to basically cut the gas prices. Because yeah, we we went. I just have a, a little like a small compact car that a couple months ago was costing me fifty dollars a gas tank and is now costing me almost seventy dollars to fill up the tank mm -hmm. now. Like, and that's just an overnight cost added to every paycheck. In terms of the policy, I don't want to be the total cynic person here, but but no, I I, I don't see anything happening. We're right on the verge of a provincial election municipal elections in ontario and and i'm looking for new creative ideas and and there just aren't any there's just more more rebates more tax cuts more incentives and nothing to, to actually help with with some of these supply issues tamara what about you how are you feeling about this so yeah. far yeah i agree um listen we are uh we're very fortunate in our household in that while we are a family of five both my husband and i work from home basically full time i've got to do some travel for work but most of the time we're at home so we only have one vehicle um we live in regina saskatchewan so we don't need to drive nearly as much as we did as as when we lived in the greater toronto area but listen we were going to buy a uh trailer this summer at least that was in the cards and to get to tow that trailer a bigger vehicle we're not doing that anymore because prices of vehicles are up prices of trailers are up prices of gas way up we're not going to be wanting to do the trip that we want to do out to bc or down to the states or over to ontario or to the maritimes it's just not in the cards it's something that we're probably going to be revisiting next year in terms of what the the different governments are doing um i agree with carl i just I, I see Quebec and Ontario, both with their provincial elections coming up. And basically what I see is like buying votes, Quebec giving out their $500 to adults with incomes below $100,000, <laughs> Ontario axing the license plate fees, which I think, I mean, I could debate this separately another time, but I think was a, a ridiculous idea. I just don't see giving money to everybody as a way to fight inflation. Isn't that sort of going to have the opposite effect? What I would love to see governments doing instead is sort of leveling the playing field and recognizing that when inflation goes up, it disproportionately impacts low-income workers low, or people who are on disability or any sort of government assistance because a bigger piece of their pie is going to the essential goods. You know, the people who make a lot of money, we might be cutting back on things like driving around a lot or buying a trailer, you know, all these luxury items really. But doing something in Ontario, like, like cutting the license plate sticker, a lot of low-income people, Ontarians, don't even own a vehicle. So how are we going to help them through this? That's where I would like to see governments uh, tackling inflation by helping people who have more of their pie going towards essential items. So I do want to, I want to pick up on that because I think, you know, I kind of, I saw the vehicle registration thing too, and I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at it. Um, and I also, we did on the show, um, make fun of the 500 bucks back in your pocket in Quebec thing, um, even though, you know, they are, they're politically successful moves, right? It is to me the most clear evidence of any government that they're sort of sensitized to the fact that stuff is more expensive. And is it means tested? No, um, at least not with the, with the vehicle piece. I'm not, I don't remember if the Quebec one was or not. Um, but what levers do they have other than giving money back to people? Because at the end of the day, monetary policy isn't dictated by the government correctly. So, like Carl, what would you expect 
um, from these governments. And frankly, I'm actually surprised, to your point, that this hasn't been hitting. Like Doug Ford's approval rating is going up in Ontario, right? Legault's standing strong. Like, I'm surprised it's not hitting them yet. That's the thing, though, is, I mean, the, the sticker example that Tamara raised is is a great example. You're, you're putting, you know, 150 bucks or whatever back in people's pockets. But that, that's taking, uh, they've calculated, it's like over a billion dollars that's going to come out of transit. And if I could take public transit to work, like I would be a happy person. It's probably about the only thing I miss about Toronto life is is that I could park the vehicle in, in the apartment that we lived in and ride the red rocket all over the place. But we can't <laughs> have that now because we, we gave the money that could have been used to help me take a bus to work. And instead that money is, is back in the pocket of somebody and it's gone. It's already gone. If, if we got our check last week, I'm telling you it's gone the next day. Uh, Tamara, about 30 seconds to you. What do you, what would you want to see government do differently if not these sort of rebates or one-off, um, you know, checks um, in the mail? I mean, as I said, I, I think they need to look at the inequality issues, uh, tackle that, do it in a more targeted way rather than buying votes. Certainly what we don't need now is politically popular moves. What we need now are moves that are, are, are motivated by, you know, educated, um, educated uh, information, poli policy, or I'm um, sorry, economic analysts, that sort of thing. And one thing that I, I would like to point out that I like is that governments of all um, levels seem to be going after the housing crisis. And I think that that'll, that'll hopefully help with the inflation stuff. Yeah, well, I think this, uh, I think this will continue to evolve. Um, it's been interesting to me that I think it's, it's, it's kind of hit politicians a little slower um, than it should, but we'll continue to watch it. And I think there's an expectation, even news today from Tiff Macklin, um, head of the Bank of Canada, that they are expected to raise interest rates um, in the coming months. So we'll continue to see what this happens and we'll watch it on the show. The Conservative leadership race continues to heat up, and we're definitely watching it here on Fear for All Friday, but the rhetoric around the front runner, Pierre Polyev, to me, is over the top. I'm going to lay out my case for that after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. This is Free for All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We are hitting out of the park this week with music intros. Love that song. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we talk about some of the biggest stories uh, of, of the week across the country with panelists. Um, today we have Carl Dockstetter, who's the co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs on CKTB, CJBK, and CKLW in Windsor, Ontario, Saturdays from 10 a.m. to noon, and Tamara Chair, former crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications. So as I mentioned before the break, and I know those have been listening for a while, um, I've been watching the CPC leadership race, the conservative leadership race, closely. And I've said before, um, I think it's important, not just for the future of conservatism, which this is what this race is about right now, but also kind of the future of democracy in Canada. Um, we've got a th three-term liberal government, and it's statistically likely whoever the conservatives pick as their leader is going to be the next prime minister, right? So it's important, and understandably, the stakes are high, and so are emotions. But some of the characterizations of frontrunner Pierre Polyev this week, to me, are over the top, and it sort of came to a head when he came to downtown Toronto this week. Um, he's been called Trumpian, he's been called transphobic, he's been accused of dog whistles, race baiting, and I don't think he's any of those things. Um, am I comfortable with the endorsement of the Freedom Convoy? No, I'm not. Um, but I also, and I also understand, and understand why people are scared, there's, a, you know, around the globe, right-wing populist movements are on the rise in Western democracy. But all right-wing movements do not equal Trump. 
Um, and he is appealing to a whole new group of disenfranchised voters, people who feel government doesn't listen to them with messaging about freedom and the dream of homeownership. And I think those are good things. Here is Pierre Polyev speaking for himself. The gatekeepers at Toronto City Hall are now talking about increasing development charges by 50%, right in the middle of a housing crisis that will make prices rise even more. Toronto City Hall and the gatekeepers who run it are engaged in an all-out attack on the working poor, our new immigrants, and our youth. So this kind of language, by the way, is it's it's rooted in policy. Um, it's There's certainly rhetoric in there, but it wouldn't work if people weren't angry or frustrated to begin with, and they feel that their government is out of touch. Um, Take the downtown Toronto event that happened this week. And I want to talk to the, the panel about this specifically. So there was, he, they announced it was going to be at a brewery, a rally downtown Toronto. An online campaign began to boycott the location or to boycott Steam Whistle Brewery, who was the sort of the host or the place where they, and they rent venues out to all kinds of parties, liberal, conservative, NDP. Um, they then kind of, I think, in my mind, overreacted and handed out a bizarre statement that said they don't endorse his views, but they still took his money. Um, what views? They wouldn't really say. Now, Polyev still managed to pack the place to the point the doors had to close 30 minutes before the rally kicked off, which is insane for a conservative politician. But to me, this perfectly encapsulates the issue I want to talk to the panel about, which is people see his campaign taking off. They don't really know what's happening or don't truly listen or look into it. So he sounds scary and then kind of freak out. Um, and before we go here, I just want to put up clip three to just say, like, this is what we're talking about here. Trudeau thinks he's your boss. He's got it backwards. You are the boss. That's why I'm running for Prime Minister, to put you back in charge of your life. Together, we will make Canadians the freest people on earth. So, Carl, I'm going to go, and Carl and Tamara, neither of you are like political, like hardcore politicos who door knock or whatever, like myself. Mm-mm. So that's why I think your, your takes are going to be really interesting today. So, um, Carl, to you first, do you think the rhetoric around Polyev is going over the top, or am I missing something that non-political folks are hearing? Yeah, I'm I'm completely non nonpartisan uh, in in any kind of way. As an Ungwehomwe person, I, I don't even vote in Canadian elections. Uh, but all that being said, I, I don't really agree with Pierre Polyev on paper on a lot of things. But but it's appealing. Like I watched the video; he was first too. So I've seen more of Pierre Polyev stuff than than any other candidate. He was first. He's different. The crowd thing is appealing, and I think I think the more that that us in the mainstream media or or whatever say oh uh, he's he's trumpian or oh he's populist or oh he's right wing i i think that fuels the fire and i think that gets people more interested in by the way a career politician who's coming yeah. across as like an anti-establishment candidate exactly <laughs> i don't know 100 right like i when i was in ottawa working in opposition for harper like pierre was like elected then and he was like we are not the same we're close to the same age um so I, I know mm-hmm. personally, but uh, so Tamara, like, what do you, because I recognize, like, I have personal connections here. I'm not on anyone's campaign for the record, and I haven't decided I'm voting mm-hmm. for. Um, but what do you, what do you make of all this? You know who you're voting for. Come on. I don't. Um, I haven't decided yet. I'm waiting for the debates. <laughs> okay. So um, first, I'll just point out that uh, I also am completely nonpartisan. I have voted for almost every political party in different levels of government over my voting age years. Um, What I will say is that I don't like it when we just jump to things like, oh, he's the Donald Trump of Canada, yada, yada, yada. But we can't ignore some of the rhetoric that's coming out of this. We can't ignore some of the similarities between 
his campaigning and some of the people that he's attracting and, you know, the campaigning like somebody like Donald Trump, for example. Um, and my worry is that he is attracting a lot of people because of some of the stuff he's saying that he won't necessarily be able to follow through on. And those people are going to be let down just like with the trucker convoy and all this stuff. There's a lot of people that have signed up for these different movements because of misinformation, disinformation, and they're all jumping on the bandwagon, but in the end, they're not going to get the results that they want. And watching this happen is worrisome to me. I saw somebody, and I think it was um, Pierre Poliev's last uh rally i think it was the one that you couldn't get into if i remember yes. correctly on your twitter feed amanda <laughs> there was somebody there wearing a donald trump for president hat why like why like so if we're talking about making these comparisons there are people within his own camp many people I, i'm not going to say most people but we've seen many people making those comparisons and that worries me because i see pierre poliev as somebody who he may not, I mean, in the past, I would say that he has absolutely perpetuated disinformation. I think it was near the be beginning of the pandemic that that he was basically playing to uh, the, the great reset conspiracy theory. Even if he said that wasn't his intention, I don't buy it. But he's absolutely playing to some of those conspiracy theorist ideals, to disinformation and misinformation around the vaccine and vaccine mandates. And I, my blood boils every time I have people, I hear people saying that Canada is not a free country and that people who go to Ottawa are freedom fighters and that Justin Trudeau is a dictator when we see what is going on in other countries in the world, first and foremost these days, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Like that, it just makes me angry and I, I don't like that that's part of his platform. The freedom, because I know who he's playing to. Yeah, I think, listen, I think the word freedom in the U.S. in particular is loaded, although it's used by politicians like across the political spectrum, right? It's it's an unusual term here in Canada um, to see a politician wave about, which it kind of makes, it's interesting, right? I think it makes people uncomfortable um, naturally. It's been uh, misappropriated. Also... It's been misappropriated, like our flag, like our, like our, um, our national anthem. There are a lot of people in this country now who, when they see somebody with a Canadian flag on their car, they cringe because of what it has been associated to, because of the allegations of anti-freedom and dictatorship. And, and that's just wrong and it's offensive and it's dangerous. I think that the way that this party could be going is a very dangerous thing. Because again, we go in, we, once we get into you know populism, we were talking in the last segment about popular political moves. Popular political moves are not always the best ones. Not when we're talking about inflation and not when we're talking about where we should be going with various other policies in this country. And that's what worries me about this campaign. I, I agree I with you. I, I agree with you, Tamara, call. but but it doesn't it doesn't matter. Like this politics is is a sport. It's it's about being popular. It's about getting elected. I wish we could talk about policy for the next 30 plus minutes that we're on the air, but but it's about <laughs> being likable. And and I don't agree with any of his policies. I agree that freedom is dangerous, but but somehow Pierre Polyev unexpectedly is is the charismatic candidate coming out of the Conservative Party of Canada. I, I will say I don't agree that freedom is dangerous. And I think that is I think people make that leap too quickly. I think people do not feel like their government is responsive to them or their government is like allowing them to live their lives in a free, free manner. And there's like I was in the lineup when I couldn't get in and it wasn't and I was in Ottawa during like the trucker stuff. And it was not those were not the same people like there may be some crossover, but I'll tell you, they were like all races, all ages. Like it was quite the crowd. So 
Um, we will certainly continue, I think, to follow this on this show because I do, I really do want to get beyond sort of the high-level rhetoric in this campaign to actually unpack what is happening there because I think it is an interesting phenomenon. And it's not the first time we've seen populism in this country, right? Like Doug Ford, I would say arguably a populist premier, reasonably centrist. What proposed federal government policies being called comparable to those in China, North Korea, and Iran? Find out after the break. The Free For All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. We are three for free in song today. I love this song, too. I am portraying myself as an 80s baby, though, every time I enjoy this. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, uh, where we talk about some of the biggest stories of the week, and we debate them with an all-star panel like we have today. Carl Dockstetter, co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs on News Talk 610 in Niagara, News Talk 1290 in London, and AM 800 in Windsor from Saturdays from 10 a.m. to noon, and Tamara Cherry, former crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications. Both join me. All right, this is a bit of a doozy. Um, the reviews are in for the government, the federal government's proposed online harms bill, uh, which is basically the Liberals' bid to regulate the Internet. And, well, uh, they're not good. I think if it was for a film, it'd be like a one or two out of, you know, five stars. 422 organizations wrote in to have their say, and after months of stonewalling by the government, Michael Geis, University of Ottawa law professor and chair of the Internet and E-Commerce Law, managed to gain access to the submissions this week. This is what Geis had to say about them. The results they got from that consultation, which, as you say, now only made available because they kept it largely, they kept the actual submission secret, only now available through access to information, uh, was resoundingly critical from across the spectrum. The very groups that, that they thought they were going to help said this was dangerous, and then some of the internet platforms started likening it uh, to China or North Korea. So. I'll give you a quick summary because obviously I haven't read all of them. And I would say some of them were made public by the individual organizations themselves. Many which were not made public were then later released um, under access to information. But this is the they were government was accused of sacrificing freedom of expression to the creation of a government run surveillance system by Twitter. Um, in that same submission, they also compared it, as Geis mentioned, to what is in place in China, North Korea or Iran. Um, different submissions warned that political parties could abuse the system. Uh, the government was also accused of violating the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And organizations like, for example, the Safe Harbor Outreach Project said the framework has, quote, grave potential to hurt sex workers, 2S LGBTQ plus folks, BIPOC communities, and other marginalized populations. This is Geist further summarizing the criticism. Some of the concerns were that some of the kinds of powers, automated reporting to the police, for example, or mandated disclosure of subscriber information, uh, led the National Council of Canadian Muslims to say that this was one of the most significant assaults on marginalized and racialized communities in years. The fact that they took the same approach for all kinds of content, uh, as if terrorism is the same as hate speech, which is the same as child endangerment, when, of course, there are differences. So, I mean, <laughs> backing it up a little bit, what the government was intending to do with this bill um, was to take aim at five kind of sort of categories. So terrorism content online, content that incites violence, hate speech, intimate images shared non-consensually, and child sexual exploitation, which I think is, you know, a, a valuable or important thing to do. It just seems the way they went about it, um, including asking platforms to, to monitor posts given 24 hours to take them down, um, you know, creating a digital safety commission of Canada in charge of enforcement um, is not 
the way that anyone, including the organizations like the Canadian Center for Child Protection, Center for Israel Affairs, the National Council of Canadian Muslims, wanted them to go about doing it. Now, the good news for all of you at home who are now horrified <laughs> is uh, the new heritage minister who kind of took this um, hot potato or steaming pile of you know what over um, said that they're open to reworking the bill and in fact has given it to an expert advisory group for two months to do work and to look at additional stakeholder consultations. But I want to ask the panel, um, and Carl, I'll go to you first. You know, obviously there are issues online, right, with terrorist content, with hate speech. I myself have received death threats um, and been doxxed, um, and I just kind of accept it as, as sort of part of life. It sucks. I put my phone away for a couple of days, and then I move along. Um, but how far should the government go in censoring or controlling online content? Like, what is the government's role, and, and what do you make of the fact that this bill has been so poorly handled to date? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is an area where the, the government should be trying to do something, the target areas that they mentioned, uh, that are areas that something something needs to be done about them. The problem is that, that the government is notoriously uh, overreaching quite a bit. And I, I know I flagged the National Association of Friendship Centers talking about changes to the CSIS Act related uh, to, to obtaining transmission of, of data. And th this is the exact same thing that happened with the anti-terrorism legislation. The, the idea is that it's going to target white supremacists and hate groups, but in actuality, it's going to, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in a physical friendship center right now. Now. Like, like, am I targeted because I'm hanging out with other Indigenous people? And like, we might have some strong views on pipelines and stuff. So, you know, if I put the wrong kind of post on, on Facebook or, or even a tweet while I'm on this very show, am I going to get arrested again? I think that's a great question, right? Which was legitimate. And for listeners at home, can you just give a quick, what is a National Association of Friendship Centers? What are they? The National Association of Friendship Centers is a is an organization that that looks out for like the 118 member friendship centers. That's where urban Indigenous people gather in in communities. Yeah, which I mean, in that an interesting part to your point, Carl, is is that this literally the intent of this legislation they the government said was to protect vulnerable populations such as you know the the in, like Indigenous population, particularly the urban Indigenous population in Canada, to protect um, you know folks that are you know victims of online, but in 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 actuality, what they did is they all these groups came up and said, this actually does the opposite, which to me is I, I don't know how you get it that wrong. Um, Tamara, what are your thoughts? Uh, OK, honestly, I'm not concerned at this point. What I am concerned about is the lack of transparency. I don't understand why Michael Geist had to file a freedom of information to find out what sort of feedback the government has been getting. Open up the books on this, open up the doors, let cameras in there, whatever, like have people come in and give their feedback and engage in some thoughtful discussion. That is what we need. Like Carl said, all of the areas that the government is targeting, these are areas that I think need to be tackled. I think that we are living in a very dangerous time right now because of how easy it is for hate and misinformation and disinformation to be perpetuated online because of how easy it is for people who are sitting in front of their uh, computer watching you know, videos that are being fed to them through these algorithms for hours and hours a day to become radicalized with very, very dangerous views. And, and to go, you know, whether that results in something like a terrorist event, like a lone wolf attack or people trying to take over parliament or whatever, I think it's a dangerous time and it needs to be addressed. But I would like these to be more open conversations. To say, though, to compare this though to China, to North Korea, to Iran is absolutely absurd. 
you think that North Korea is going to be allowing anybody to give them them feedback on these sorts of things or China for that matter? No. The fact that we're engaging in these consultations, that the heritage minister has put a pause on this for more consultations because they obviously didn't get it right the first time around. But, you know, the government that, that's the history of government. They screw up. They hopefully take consultations and, and talk to the right people. Uh, one other thing I want to say is I don't understand how this would be um, impacting people who are in the sex work community. I've, I've done, a, as a journalist, I did a lot of work in that area, looking at things like uh, online ads, um, human trafficking, victims being exploited online, that sort of thing. I haven't heard anybody complaining about this sort of thing. I understand that some people might flag it, but overall, that seems like something pretty easy that the government would, would be able to work into this. That said, do we need to be raising these flags? Absolutely, but that is what this process is all about. So I have faith at this point in the process that at least they're continuing these conversations. I don't think that we should be going crazy and calling this North Korea. Well, I think it's, to be clear, the the reason they called it North Korea or was a, or, or, like or ask is the design of the policy, which was basically this. There's something called um, notice and like notice and notice or notice and take down or just take down, right? And basically, mm -hmm. the requirement was is that government would monitor, government would decide. Um, there's no judicial appeal process, and you just have to take it down in 24 hours, which is not something that is typically in place in most like Western democracies. And, you know, to my mind, I, I agree with you, and particularly on the transparency piece. My guess is it's not being transparent because, like, Minister Rodriguez, who's competent, took this over from the previous minister, Stephen Gilblow, who got himself all kinds of trouble over Bill C-11, mm -hmm. which is about regulating user-generated content, and mm -hmm. C-18 about, you know, mandated payments for facilitating access to news online, which are still going forward, by the way. Um, and it was a dumpster fire. And they he's now at Environment. Rodriguez is here to sort of fix things. And he's clearly run up against like the majority of organizations across the board. And to me, that's the thing. It's not just freedom of speech groups. Um, it's uh, it's others which who are like, you know, folks like as the freedom or the uh, National Association of Friendship Centers, Canadian Center for Child Protection. I mean, it, like it's not your normal fighters on this stuff. So um, I brought it up. We're obviously reviewing, which I think is a good thing. But I brought it up on the show because we haven't talked about it. And I actually think this stuff is important. Um, I'm not sure how much I think the government needs to have a role in this. But if they're going to, they need to get it right. And clearly, this isn't the case. But at least they're revisiting it. Well, should the prime minister have a brand new house? Should we build it as taxpayers for him? A new government report says so. Find out why after the break. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Friday. We've made it to the last block of the show where we try and have a little bit of fun with our panel. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we break out the biggest news of the week and debate it with all of you. Today we have Carl Dockstetter, who's co-host of One Dish, One Mike, which airs on News Talk 610 in Niagara, News Talk 1290 in London, and AM 800 in Windsor on Saturdays from 10 a.m. to noon, and Tamara Cherry, former crime reporter and founder of Pickup Communications. So this this new report was seven years in the making. That's right, people. It took seven years for the National Capital Commission to say that, yeah, maybe fixing up <laughs> 24 Sussex for $36 million isn't worth it. And maybe we should build the premise or a bigger, 
better house. Um, so this new home, which they call befits our country's role as a G7 member and a world player. So the new house they're proposing is about 1,500 square or 15,000 square feet, I should say. Um, the current 24 Sussex is, is 12,000 12, square feet. It would include office space, um, family space, servage, storage, proper kitchen area, and also um, a space for a, he could host 100, or he or she or whomever is in, in the Prime Minister's office would host a 125-person state dinner. Um, Tamara, I heard you giggling there in the back. Uh, are you, do you think... The PM deserves, or the next, it won't be this PM, frankly, but uh, or unlikely to be, um, but do you think the next PM deserves some new digs, or should we fix up 24 to the tune of uh, $36 million and, and counting? Well, we don't know how much these new digs are going to cost yet, right? We don't we do know not, no, what no, exactly. We just know we, we should have them. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, th I, yeah, I have no problem with the prime minister getting new digs. I mean, they, they, they waited so long to get to this point because nobody wanted to do the unpopular political move of, you know, regular upkeep, upkeep that regular Canadians do on their homes. So we found ourselves in this position. Listen, I know this is the last segment we like to keep it light. So I would just like to say that who doesn't love a great real estate story? I feel like once this thing is made, they should do a YouTube video giving us a tour and it'll be better <laughs> than Drake's video that showed us his big bridal path mansion in Toronto. I just, I, I read the story. I'm like, oh my gosh. And are they going to do a pool? Are they 125 people? I imagine the prime <laughs> minister sitting at one end of the table and you know, everybody, but really, I mean, Honestly, though, who has how often would he be hosting 125 people that part? I feel like that sort of stuff. It's like really look at how often you're going to use that space and maybe you can just use the museum space down the road. I don't know, but I'm excited to see the designs. Let's have a design competition and open it up. We should have a design. I, see, well, I will say where I the, the bone I pick is the oh, well, maybe we don't need the 125 like space or whatever. We can just go down the street. It's like we're a G7 country for God's sakes. Like, can't we just like, can't we just let ourselves have a nice thing that will be, like, fully useful and fully functional for the government to operate? Um, and it's not just state dinners. I mean, he could have, like, you could host whatever you want. I think there's a lot of benefit to having that in one, one space. I also think fixing up 24 Sussex, which, by the way, according to the story you, we read, um, is currently a, a, a fire risk because the light fixtures are so old they're sparking. <laughs> Going flame um, may not be worth it. Carl, are you pro new digs? Are you you into like a home show for the future PM, or is this a waste of money to your mind? I I think this is a big time waste of money. I think that we're talking about it now because it's politically strategic to talk about it now. I I think that the next election that the candidates should run on what they want to do with twenty four Sussex, and then maybe they'll pick a house that looks more like my house. I live on a humble house with only eleven hundred square feet. We get by. We manage mm -hmm. with our eleven hundred square feet. We live on a numbered street in the urban core. We're going to be okay. It's good enough for us. I think that's good enough for a prime minister. They have all kinds of real no, estate flashy things to show off in Ottawa. You're, There's all kinds of public spaces. You're like delegations from around I the would, world. I would. I would. If Justin wants to come stay with me when he's in Niagara Falls, <laughs> the offer is open. I've got room on my couch. He can stay there where the rest of my family stays. Uh, I feel like it would be a good time. I feel like Carl, you'd you'd be like a, a sneak, like it'd be a good uh, be a good party at Carl's house on the residential space. I'd be into that. Niagara so. Falls is great. Any anytime, anytime. Come on down to the falls. We can we can use the tourists. <laughs>
Perfect. All right. Um, this next one, I uh, wanted to get your take on this. So it's sort of been lots of talk this week about Netflix um, that had a, a, a surprise, well, surprise, but maybe not so surprising drop in subscribers given the reaction we've had this week um, talking about it, which caused Netflix shares to drop 35%, which has fallen to their lowest level since 2018. Um, this comes as they announced they're cracking down on password sharing um, and also thinking of experimenting with ads. Uh, Tamara, does this turn you off at Netflix or are you going to, you know, I've been a subscriber for ages. I mean, I subscribe to every like streaming service out there. I think I need to call it soon, but um, does this turn you off or are you Netflix or die kind of girl? Eh, I'm not Netflix or die. I mean, I am now, but let's just wait until my youngest gets out of the Paw Patrol stage. And then I'll be like, see ya, because we got Disney, (laughs) we got Cray, we got a plus HBO. We got, we got it all. And we actually even have regular cable because I need it for work. But um, listen, we share our password with one person. And that is my mother-in-law in Brazil because, and it's not because she can't afford it. or We're trying to save her money. It's literally because she wouldn't have known how to set up her Netflix account on her own, put in all the credit card information, all that stuff. So we're like, we just put ours in for her and we have the most basic account. So it means when she's watching, we can't be watching at the same time and vice versa. So, I mean, this isn't, this isn't a make or break for me, but the rising costs, I think, sort of are. And I know that feeds into this because I don't want to be paying $20 a month for Netflix if, if the basic one gets to that someday. I don't know if it ever will. When there are so many other options out there and ads would definitely be a breaking point for me because I'm not going to a streaming service, a subscriber-based streaming service to watch ads. That's, that's why we stepped away from, from regular television watching. It's actually, it's funny you say that literally that we do the same thing. My mother-in-law, um, you know, she's like, she's great and somewhat technologically proficient, but it's just much easier for us to just give her a, like stuff on our, our prime and our crate, whatever else. And she just mm-hmm. accesses it that way. So same, same, my friend, it's not about money for us. It's just about <laughs> facility. Um, Carl, are you, are you going to cancel your Netflix subscription and protest or are you okay with this? <laughs> I, I don't think I could cancel my my Netflix subscription. So so I I pay for it, and uh, if if I if I tried to cancel it like right now while we were on the air, I I would have somebody from my house like immediately coming because <laughs> they love it. They somebody somewhere in our house. That's how Netflix gets you. Is they they yeah. still have the catalog. So there's four people that that live in our house legally sharing because we all watch it on the on the same TV in our humble 1100 square foot house. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, they would they would get after me. So whether i want to or not it, it doesn't matter i don't get a vote in my house <laughs> all right so netflix but they're not they're all... not churning out the great content that they were before i don't think like i i feel like because there's so much other competition now that has such great like series like it used to be that netflix had all these awesome series i feel like it's it's not to the same caliber as it used to be like going on to, and even seeing something that's trending in canada i'm more often than not like disappointed these days whereas it used to be the opposite so I, I like I feel like they've got to step up their game in that area too. I will say That's Bridgerton, good. if you watch, was a great letdown for me, like a glorious. Yeah, terrible well, letdown. it was your like tweet that made me garbage. not continue that. Yeah, don't do it. Or, or just watch I, episodes six and seven. Sorry, Carl, we cut you off there real quick. There's no, I, I, Crave, Crave has the Canadian content. And that's, that's the only thing, actually, is there still is not much Canadian content on Netflix. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, I love Letterkenny and there's nothing like it on any of the other services. <laughs> Crave is Crave is excellent. Um, I actually and I like the access to HBO. They're also, you know, our parent company's Bell. So that is Crave. So glad we can. I was sucking up a little bit. Them. Bell Media high ups. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Uh, that we're at a racetrack now. Thank you so much, Tamara and Carl, for coming on the show and debating all those topics with me today. Uh, thank you to producer Corey. And thank you for technical producer Nick, who just celebrated a birthday. So happy birthday to Nick. Thank you. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I'll see you, in two, uh, see you next week. Happy Friday.